You know those times in the day when you can't fit in a full podcast? Running out to the store, walking the dog, or washing the dishes? Jam is the new way to listen when you have just enough time for the perfect short audio playlist. Get started at listentojam.com slash podcast and get your daily Jam playlist filled with more voices in less time. With Jam, you can choose from news, parenting tips, wellness advice, and more. Go to listentojam.com slash podcast and satisfy your curiosity with short audio. Discover something new every day. Hi, welcome to your neighborhood pharmacy. Hi, I've got a prescription for diabetes test strips. How much is the copay? Well, it depends on your type of commercial insurance and factoring in your yearly spend, subtracting the deductibles, also depending on your monthly allowance. Why can't there be a better option? Or you could try Contour Next Test Strips. A 35 counts only $19.99 over the counter and proven to be highly accurate. Go to contournext.com slash radio to see if over-the-counter strips are a more affordable option for you. Hmm, I think I'll try Contour Next. Mental Podcast is a show dedicated to individuals and mental health professionals, providing support, information, and some candid conversation along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Michelle and Seth. Welcome back to Mental. And I caught you, Seth. I was going to let you do it, but I thought I would jump in because I wanted to show you that I had the timing down. See, I had it. I ap- <laughs> I appreciate that. You And I've even noticed this is like the second know, episode. Right? You've, taken so, you've taken some ownership oh. of, of when we come in after the intro. I'm very proud Only because you. you've given me so much crap for missing the cue so many times. <laughs> and you know I'm competitive, so... <laughs> I- I don't give yes, you, you crap. Do. Yes, Come you on. Do. Anyway, welcome back to Mental. Uh, we are here today to finish up our series on religious trauma syndrome. As many of you know, we have been doing an ongoing series on trauma in general, and then we have taken some months and developed uh, that idea through some certain subject matter, like domestic violence or child abuse. And this month has been all about religious trauma syndrome. Uh, just to remind everybody and our listeners. Again, this is not a diagnosable syndrome or problem or anything. It's not in the DSM. It is not in it is not in the DSM. No, but it is something that a lot of people are dealing with. It has become a very large subject matter around the subject of deconstruction and religion in general. Um, a lot of people sharing their ideas, their thoughts on uh, things they've experienced within religion that has served to to traumatize them in some form or fashion. And so in discussing this, we didn't want to just end it with, you know, yet another example of how people are traumatized because there's plethora of that. There's, there's so many. What we wanted yes. to do is we wanted to kind of bring it together as we have with the others and say, how is this treatable? How is this something we can respond to? And in discussing how we wanted to do that, we decided to invite our very good friend, Mark, Dr. Mark Karras, to come and join us. Hi, Mark. Hey, everyone. Great to be here. <laughs> Mark, you just got your doctorate. I'm so proud of you. And so Thank I wanted you. to make sure I corrected and used your <laughs> title officially. No, no worries. But, I'm not a snob about it. <laughs> oh, that's all right. But you sh- you get to celebrate it for a little while. So, <laughs> right, you know, right. you get to use the title and everything like, for a little technically, while. Technically, yeah, you technically can be a snob about it for a while. In fact, I encourage you to. You need yeah. to because you've worked so hard at this. I'll think about it. I've, I've been yeah, wrestling with it. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. it's you, know. you, you don't have to be a snob, but you can, you definitely get to use the title for a while for sure. Like, all right, I'll, I'll take you it. Earned I'll that take doctorate. It. Yeah, Doctor yeah, Mark Harris it. has, has um, a ring to it. There, see, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you are actually a, a practicing uh, therapist, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In marriage right. and family, or what's your what's your discipline? Yes, a licensed marriage and family therapist, okay. full time right. uh, private practice. Mm-hmm. Okay, but now you've also well recently just released a book on the subject of deconstruction. But you have several books out. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about those initially, and then we'll we'll see how that rolls into the conversation on religious trauma syndrome. Sure, I have three books and a few essays and stuff out, but. Yeah, the first book, I don't really, well, that was a book about helping folks heal after heartbreak, after actually getting dumped in a relationship. But the second book, yeah, and and ironically, some of the things that I have in there, uh, I use in my third book, which is helping those grieve uh, and work through religious trauma. But the second book I'm really proud of, and that's Divine Echoes, Reconciling Mm -hmm. Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God, you know, deconstructing, investigating, deconstructing, reconstructing, petitionary prayer, uh, got kicked out of the church I was in because of it, a little controversial. But then my my third book, which I'm really, really proud of, because I get to help so many folks struggling through this phenomenon, you know, the deconstruction, reconstruction journey, uh, faith shift, whatever you want to call this. Um, this completely world-changing, world-shattering shift that many people experience after leaving what they now might consider toxic religion, particularly right. in the in the Christian faith. Right. Well, and you, again, you and I have that in common. You know that that's our our field of study. That's our field of interest. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think we have to differentiate a little bit. A deconstruction, you know, is an all-encompassing term, basically, that's become known around this idea of questioning your faith. But religious trauma syndrome goes a little beyond that. That's specific to actually being harmed by the church itself and not just your own beliefs and then questioning God and all that. So there's a little bit of a differentiation. I, I, I would think you would agree with that. I don't know. Maybe do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of things, you know, in the in the book, Religious Refugees, I coined this, you know, it's called religious disorientation growth syndrome, yes. with its own cluster of, of symptoms. Uh, but I do differentiate between religious disorientation and religious trauma. Right. Um, it's And that's, mm. there's a distinction there, because trauma, I want to give trauma its due. Um, so some people can mm-hmm. have a disorientation where, you know, their lives aren't drastically affected by it, right. but they're, you know, they're changing some beliefs they feel some anxiety around it. Um, and, and it can be very disorienting, but trauma, I mean, we're talking about imprints on the body, imprints on right. the nervous system, deeply affecting one's physiology, uh, emotions, emotion regulation. And then let me share one other thing is that mm-hmm. I've been getting some uh, pro- maybe good slack on the use of syndrome. So re- even religious trauma syndrome is being deconstructed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is through the Global Center for Religious Research. And they're saying, yeah, y'all, you need to get, Mark, you need to get rid of that word syndrome. Mm. Um, and I thought that was mm. interesting. So I've been in conversation, uh, well, I think it's uh, Darren Slade. 
So interesting conversation. You know, they say syndrome, and I'm, I'm wrestling through it because I wrote this in my book, Religious Disorders right. and Growth Syndrome. <laughs> but I was trying to give voice to syndrome. Another synonym for syndrome is cluster. So a cluster of experiences that are pretty common to those who are right. deconstructing reconstructing their faith. But they, they say syndrome, first of all, it doesn't really say a lot. Uh, it's because, right. and I think they're pushing, and this is, you know, they're going against the DSM too, which I'm mm -hmm. not a, a big fan of, but all they're doing is coming up with a cluster of symptoms, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't prioritize mm -hmm. what we call in our field client specificity, where we want to delve into this unique person's experience. And they, they may not experience all these symptoms, number one, right. but number two, they could experience more than the symptoms that I'm actually showing. So that that's one reason. Another reason they're, they're saying syndrome can be a little pejorative. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, know, isn't that all really like, now we go back to the actual, you know, the original definition of deconstruction, which was about unity of text. And so they're ba that's their yeah. argument, basically. We're just not agreeing on terminology, but they're basically explaining the same thing. <laughs> it sounds like from what you're saying. I, I know. It, it, it's... I, I personally think like somebody already coined religious trauma syndrome. So we mm -hmm. as this center and hub for this kind of research with religious trauma, we want our own kind of shtick right. around it. Yeah, we, we want to look different. In, in, in part. I think that's a part <laughs> yeah. of it. But And that's yeah. fine. There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that they had that, that, that much of a differentiation. Oh, they're um, passionate about it. They want to yeah. get rid of it. Yeah, wow. they had a whole committee on it. Um, wow. The whole committee was for oh, really? um, wrestling with should we include syndrome? And it was, it, they yeah, they really wrestled through it. Mm -hmm. that, that's interesting because it almost seems like it's a side issue. Like that's not even really getting into the thrux of the, of the problem itself. That's arguing semantics <laughs> rather than the issues that are that you shouldn't be discussing. That's how it sounds to me anyway. I mean, I, I don't know, care I one know. way or another, but. <laughs> I, I do appreciate the, the focus on the client in not encapsulating the person with a syndrome, which is my construct of symptoms that right. they should have to have this particular. Um, so I, I get that. I can appreciate that piece. I'm still thinking through it. So it, so it sounds as though that what you're saying then is that they are not wanting to define the person by a list of symptoms, but they would rather allow the person to define themselves because their symptoms may be different than other people have experienced. Yeah, that's a that's one. And if you, there's a pie chart of the reasons mm -hmm. why I think okay. that's that's definitely uh, one of them, right? Well, and well, then, then I had... just the term, yeah, itself yeah. is negative. Yeah, and it does it does yeah. kind of have yeah, it has yeah negative connotation associated with it. Well, Seth and I had had a discussion before about this is really a, it, it it on some level it's kind of problematic to discuss because there really isn't this list of symptoms like when you open the DSM and you're talking about narcissistic personality disorder you have a list of things that you can kind of okay where's the person do they meet the criteria or, you know or are they just on the spectrum somewhere this there really is no definition or defined list like that so it's really hard to pinpoint if somebody's actually suffering you know from this we can only go experientially and say yeah it sounds like it <laughs> You know, and it, so it makes it a little yeah. more difficult. But I mm -hmm. also think that that's kind of valuable because it allows each person to bring their experience to the table and it's validated. You know, it's not mm -hmm. just a, well, because again, 
Seth and I have discussed multiple times throughout the series that trauma is is so subjective. It's so specific to that person. What I might find traumatic, you may not. Sure. And so, mm-hmm. so this subject matter becomes very difficult because when I listen to and I've listened to a lot of people, and I'm sure you have as well, who've discussed their experience through religion and through the church. And I think some of them, I'm like, eh, that's not really that bad. But then that's not my decision to make, you know, and I have to, sure. I have to remember sure. that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes this subject very difficult. Um, <laughs> on, on that, on that note, the, this is why the, um, the global center for religious research just wants to call it religious trauma so that the specificity of what the the person is actually bringing to the table can come to the fore as opposed to encapsulating them with a syndrome. So the North American Committee on Religious Trauma Research actually has come up with a a definition. So they're really trying to operationalize this stuff, Mm. Uh, but they are just moving away from syndrome. Just an interesting yeah. A piece there. Yeah. So are mm-hmm. they are they looking at then are they also addressing the issues of of how we address somebody that has suffered this way? Are, are, you know, are they coming up with criteria for treatment? Well, they're not. Um, and to to be mm-hmm. fair too, this is my pushback in the DSM. This is also coming from intensive short term psychodynamic therapy uh, guy John Fredrickson that even the DSM, Mm -hmm. all it's doing is giving you a cluster of symptoms. Right. (laughs) The pushback on syndrome, my question is, how is that any different than any current diagnosis in the DSM? Because there's no diagnosis in the DSM that says that you have to hit every single one of these symptoms. All they are are a cluster of symptoms. Yeah. So I this is I don't understand where that divide is because it seems like that yeah how's that any different? Well, I mean there's there's pushback on the DSM like for example, if you go to the doctor and you got a cold and all they do is tell you yes, you have a sore throat, you you have a fever, your nose is running like that's not really helping the person. You're just right. describing their symptoms. Mm-hmm. And in that way, the DSM is just doing that. Where a- another exactly. mode of thought is, and this is via John Fredrickson's work, is something called psychodiagnosis. We're, we're actually diagnosing, in a sense, the moment-to-moment experience of the client and their responses of feelings, anxiety, and defenses. So it gets very, uh, you know, specific to what the client is presenting in the room. Um, how are they with feelings? What feelings are they able to talk about, not talk about, feel, not feel? Where is their anxiety? Is there in a cognitive perceptual field, smooth muscles, striated? So they're looking where the anxiety is and they're looking how they defend against uh, coming into contact with their authentic, true core feelings. So that's another, just throwing that out there, it's another way to deal with a diagnosis, which is in the room with this specific client and realizing that the DSM is just describing symptoms, doesn't show why they're uh, experiencing that and how to treat them. What good is that? Right. Well, that's that's what I think is misunderstood a lot about the DSM, and it was certainly something I misunderstood in the beginning as well, is, you know, I thought it was this manual that explained what the criteria was for a disorder, and then it provided the answer and how you were supposed to, you know, 
produce results with a, with a client that was suffering with something like that. And in reality, you're right, it is just offering symptoms. And then there's all these theories on, out there on how to treat something. You know, there's cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral mm-hmm. therapy. There's all these different kinds of therapy that that a therapist becomes well-versed in in order to try and help somebody through whatever this is that they're dealing with. And so that's kind of the interest that I think we have in, in this discussion is where are we finding the treatment? What What is the approach that you think is helpful to working with somebody? And I don't know if that's even a good question. What What is mm-hmm. the approach that you think is helpful in working with somebody that is suffering from this cluster of symptoms that are associated with religious trauma? Right. Well, I do see people, you know, it is a, a niche of mine, and I see people um, working once to work through that. I'd like to write on it, but I, I think I, I let me give an overview of how I would uh, and how I do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm kind of taking Judith and this, so this is very therapishy kind of thing. That's fine. Um, it's not, it's not like a lay person. It's, we can handle well, yeah, it. Yeah. Right. I'm just saying it's not like a lay person. It's sort of, I'm thinking as a therapist with my therapist hat on. Mm-hmm. So I kind of take Judith Herman's very common there. You know, if you talk about trauma work, there's typically three stages, uh, three phases, if you will, of, of um, trauma work. And so the first is safety and stability. That's sort of the, the triage phase. The second is remembrance and mourning. And the third is reconnection with the self and integration. Now, all those can be flushed out. But I'm going to start with these three kind of ideas of how to work with clients. And we could talk about kind of each one, you know, for example, what is stage one safety and stability, you know, stabilization look like? And so for me as a therapist, I already have these things that I am, I am looking for that I want to work with. And so the first one is like simple. I want to build an alliance. And this, you know, getting into attachment theory, very informed with attachment theory, this is no small matter. Right. Like the idea of being present with somebody who folks really have been present with, but only the projections of who they wish they were as this religious person in this particular mold. I mean, just starting off with giving them this flavor of, you know, the Rogerian unconditional positive guard, empathy, congruence. I'm here with you. I don't have an agenda that I'm going to force on you. I truly want to embody somebody who's listening to you, not just what you say, but how you say it. I want to be looking at your body, your body language. I want to make sure this is the safest place, one of them that you've ever been in, right? They need safety, especially if we're talking about religious trauma. Yes. Yeah. So just starting there, I mean, that's, I I don't want to smooth over that. It seems simple, but building an alliance, relationship, relationship, relationship in collaboration is just, is huge. I was going to say that probably takes a little bit of time because especially when you're coming from a position of trauma and specifically religious trauma, there's a trust issue, I think. Um, because that trust has probably been violated somewhere along the way. So building that relationship, and that's typical with a therapist relationship anyway, you have to build that trust relationship to get that person to actually emote what is actually happening. So do you find that, I mean, that's obviously different for each person, but do you find that takes a little bit of time before you're actually, before they actually feel safe enough to actually engage in that? It it does take some time. Um, 
but not too much time. I think there, there's some pretty good traction. I mean, if we're talking about major trauma, yeah. I mean, we're talking about a few sessions for them to, their nervous systems to kind of calm down a little bit. Right. But, you know, I have an interesting thing where if they read, I'm an ordained pastor, you know, um, right. <laughs> or a theologian or writing on, like, how, that causes I know some you're backup. a therapist, <laughs> but can I trust that you're not going to have this sort of religious, you know, pastoral, ordained pastor, like I'm an ordained, like, are you going to have some sort of agenda here? So I think it takes a little bit time for them to, but I try to let them know up front. And, and I, I kind of see where the client is. I'll throw a curse word yeah. out there. Just to, <laughs> listen, I'm not your traditional uh, pastor who's going to give you a bunch of scripture verses and call it a day. I'm not yeah. engaging in new thetic counseling here. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's that takes some time. And it's just an important part of the process. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's brilliant, honestly, because, you know, that is one of the things that I've heard over and over from people that are actually deconstructing from religion is that that pendulum swing to where language has actually become something that's almost this cathartic event. Like it was mm -hmm. for me, like my, mm -hmm. I used to have a really horrible mouth when I was in the Marine Corps and then I got it under control, you know, when I got all religious, but then that came back and I felt so bad about it for a while. And then I realized like, oh no, this is just me. This is the emotions coming up out of me. This is okay. And now I kind of do that too. I gauge it. Like, is somebody going to be okay with, <laughs> if I throw out this word to see kind of where they are? Right. Right. It's an, it's an assessment. You throw it, really it out is. there. Oh, I saw their face grimace a little. Okay. I won't go there again. Exactly. Um, they're just, they're not, but it's a, it's a great assessment tool, right? <laughs> Who would have known right? cursing as an intervention yes. within psychotherapy? I think it's brilliant. Yeah. I, it's valid yes. and it's a great way of testing the water. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, and as you mentioned, it's a good assessment. Yeah. And, and there's, uh, you know, there's some research around, you know, those who curse tend to be more honest. Um, I've, I've it, heard it, that it, too. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes the F word is the only, you know, there's yeah. no other better word for a circumstance. Yeah. But to see some clients just like come out of themselves, like I don't never encourage, oh, you know, have a foul mouth, but right. sometimes to encourage them to express themselves fully, you know, because many times, you know, they'll, they'll say an F-bomb or shit or something and, and I'll, <laughs> they'll be like, oh, they'll be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, so I'm like, you don't have to apologize. Yeah, exactly. I you want get to you be to who be you are. Fully free <laughs> yeah. to express yourself. And that's, well, that's exactly funny. what they need. Yeah. Yeah. I, cause I started therapy earlier this year and you know, you're trying to find the right person or whatever. And when I first went to see my therapist, I think in the first 10 minutes, I don't know if it was a test on her part either, but she threw out an F bomb and, and I laughed and she goes, what? And I said, we're good. <laughs> we're all good. I feel comfortable now. And we've been great ever since. Like she's somebody I would be friends with if, if we weren't in that therapeutic right. relationship. So it, yeah. it really is, I think, helpful on some level to for the person on the other side to know that it's okay to be who I am, that I'm not going to be judged. Because often when yeah. we're talking about religious trauma, there has been oh, that man. element of judgment in their life for so long mm -hmm. and that they've had to hide some of who they really are, you know, and a lot of shame and guilt comes along with that. So yes. I think it is so mm -hmm. important for them to find that peace and that comfort in that relationship. Um especially as it pertains to trying to heal from this kind of trauma. So, yeah. all right. So you mentioned getting used to that and everything. What was the next step yeah. that you had mentioned? Um, I think the next step is kind of doing that psychodynamic, uh, psycho 
diagnostic uh, assessment. Because if we're talking about mm -hmm. stabilization, we're talking about safety. And it's not the stage where we, you know, are in a meaning making, we're not in stage two, we're not going to go through memory work. Um, I will talk more about, uh, you know, phase stage two. But I want to make sure they're safe. I want to make sure that they're, you know, what's going on with depression and their right. feelings and how they're handling them. And um, so that sort of, you know, assessing for anxiety and mm -hmm. the ability to regulate or not regulate feelings, which ones are comfortable, which ones are not. And, and defenses are not often talked about, but I want to know how they're dealing and processing with the shame, with the loss, with the pain, with the right. anger. If they're, if they're in, unable to process and deal with that, then they're probably defending against it. And that's where we can have somatic symptoms. Uh, that's right. where, you know, maybe they are engaging in maladaptive behaviors just to freaking cope with the madness and disorientation that they're feeling mm -hmm. and that they don't want to come into full contact with because it would, they feel would make their head and heart explode. So that triage, I want to make sure they're safe. I want to make sure they're okay um, and how this stuff is really showing up practically in their life. And, you know, I've encountered some mm -hmm. who, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm watching porn a couple hours, you know, several hours a day just to cope, right? And, you know, I'm not getting into the morality of porn, but just as <laughs> they realize they're doing it to cope um, uh, right. or drugs or, you know, just yeah. a self-isolation, you know, whatever it is, looking at sort of the, their uh, health and, and safety and ability yeah. to deal with their, because it's, it's not the emotions, it's what they're doing to deal with the emotions Right. Is usually the problem. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've seen a lot of commentary um, from people that are, are critical of the deconstructive process, you know, where they say, well, you just went, you just went hog wild, you know, you just all these things. And they're looking at this behavior and I, it's almost that pendulum swing, you know, that they're, you're looking for that equilibrium, but it's going to take a little bit of time because you've been mm -hmm. so far this way that you swing wide and it takes a while to find this middle ground that you, you settle in. And so there is going to be yeah. behavior. There is going to be things that go on. And and if we attach judgment to those things again, we're really mm -hmm. making it a very religious experience for them again, which is furthering yeah. kind of this traumatic mindset. Um, and so I think it's wonderful to give them the latitude to work through that. And you're right, to recognize that that is what's happening. This isn't because you're a bad person. This is you trying to cope, you know, mm -hmm. and that's a very real yeah. human thing, you know, mm -hmm. that we all do. So I think that's, I think that's amazing. Yeah. That, yeah. that has to and be that, something these, I think that is mm -hmm. brought into therapy more when we're dealing with this subject matter, because I think the tendency, mm -hmm. especially if we're looking from a Christian counseling perspective, is there tends to be that subtle judgment that's still there on that kind of behavior. Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. a big part of it. And you mentioned something, you mentioned something a minute ago, I think is huge. And I think it needs, I think it bears repeating that typically when when there's been trauma through a religious experience the issue is not our own right. our actual feelings but how we're coping with our mm -hmm. feelings and 
and there's so much judgment that comes down from religious organizations, right? That actually places such a negative value on our actual feelings. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, so splitting that and actually describing that I think is so incredibly wow, important mm-hmm. because I, because I think so many people get mm-hmm. caught there mm-hmm. and it's that these, I should not be feeling That's this right. way. Um, and, and, and I, I'm not allowed to feel this way, yeah. or I'm not allowed to say mm-hmm. this, or I'm not allowed to think this, when in fact you are That's right. allowed to think that. The problem is not yeah. that. The problem is how we cope with yeah. that. Beautifully said. And, you know, this is where... It, you said but, it. <laughs> well, you know, you said it in your own, your own way in words. So it was beautifully said. So therein lies, you know, when I'm thinking the therapist had interventions... Uh, two things that you kind of just brought out is normalizing, right? Like everything Mm -hmm. I do in the therapeutic room, there's usually a word for it. And so just normalizing someone's experience tied in with the other therapeutic intervention of psychoeducation is huge for those who are struggling with religious trauma. And there's this kind of phrase in in the, the therapy world that which you can name, you can tame. And so when, when clients are coming in with religious trauma, there's a globalized sense like Mark, I'm, I'm just suffering. I, I feel, I don't know what I feel, right? There's this global sense of distress and the ability to start naming like, oh, this is what you're feeling. Of course you would feel this way. Of course you would feel angry at this. Anger is an emotion that communicates that something happened to you that was unfair or unjust. Every emotion communicates two things or does two things. One, communicates information. Two, it has an action tendency. So everyone, sadness, shame, fear, surprise, joy, all of it. So anger communicates this injustice. And then it has an action tendency to want to do something about it, right? It is unfair. And then I could just start to see, you know, clients soften. Like, right. Maybe I'm not crazy. Oh my gosh. Right. That's huge in itself. Mm-hmm. I'm not crazy. Honestly, when I, I mean, I've been going through this for a while. Like I, I mentioned earlier, my process began about eight years ago and it, it comes on you so suddenly and you don't understand what's happening. And it's like the sand has shifted beneath your feet. And because of that. Say that again, Michelle. Oh, okay. I don't know why it's doing this today. All right. Anyway, what I was going to say is when I began this process eight years ago, of course, you have no warning for it. It just happens to you. And the, and the sand under your feet shifts. It feels like standing on the beach and the, sh- you know, the shifting sand and you're unstable. And there were, there were suddenly all these emotions I didn't know what to do with, you know, and, and I remember I tried to explain it to people. I tried to mm-hmm. tell them what was happening. And of course you just get these weird looks like, okay, whatever, you know. But when I worked through um, a life coaching certification, I worked for for a year, but when it was introduced to me, the gentleman that created it, he put out this video to the people that were gonna be within it. And he was like, here's what we're gonna be talking about. And he explained exactly what I was feeling. I literally put my head on the desk and cried for like 20 minutes and thought, Oh my God, there is somebody that gets it. I'm mm. not all by myself. And I think that's what you're saying is people mm-hmm. need to know I'm, I'm okay. That I may feel crazy. I may feel out of the loop. I may feel like the world is shifting, mm-hmm. 
but but there is a name for this. There are other people experiencing this. It's not just me out here losing my mind, you know. And I think that's incredibly, it's validating and it's healing, right. even mm-hmm. in a small way to know that you're not the only one. Okay, so what? No, I I mean, yeah, it's just it's just such a beautiful experience to see people really heal and come alive with within the uh, attachment relationship. Right. Um, where they're finally able to mm-hmm. be themselves. They're not crazy. Every single emotion that they're experiencing makes 100% right. total sense. Like the the ironic thing is they're actually very normal. Like you there would be there's a sense of abnormality to a person mm-hmm. not having shame, you know, right. anger, fear, loss, sadness, you know, coming out of a toxic environment. And so it's normal. Uh, but, you know, this this myth that says, oh, we shouldn't have these kind of feelings. You know, if I'm sad or I'm angry, I'm disoriented, that's wrong, bad, not okay, not successful, not healthy. Right. But ironically, that's the healthiest thing. That shows your system and your nervous system is actually freaking working. Right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and you have a couple things here that I think is ironic. You know, first of all, there's such a stigma associated with mental health as it as it exists anyway. You know, there's it's seen so negatively to have any kind of mental health issue. But then on top of that, within religion itself, certainly within Christianity, we're taught that, you know, that's either the devil or you just don't have enough faith or, you know, there's, there's some kind of stigma attached to those emotions. So we tend to hide them and push them down, which only further exacerbates the issue um, and, and makes it a bigger mm-hmm. thing when it finally does come out. <laughs> and so it's, it's helpful to be allowed to show and to Im- to emote those things and, and that it's okay with the people that we're talking with that we do. So, you know, I think, I think that is, that is in itself, in and of itself, so healing on a level. So, okay. What was this? With Eversense, the long-term sensor helps me spend less time dealing with my CGM. I only need two sensor changes a year. If you're on multiple doses of insulin, you might greatly benefit from the Eversense E3 CGM system, the only continuous glucose monitoring system that lasts for up to six months with one sensor. Still doing frequent sensor changes? Break free today with Eversense. For important safety information and to learn more about Eversense, please visit eversensediabetes.com safety. You know those times in the day when you can't fit in a full podcast? Running out to the store, walking the dog, or washing the dishes? Jam is the new way to listen when you have just enough time for the perfect short audio playlist. Get started at listentojam.com slash podcast and get your daily Jam playlist filled with more voices in less time. With Jam, you can choose from news, parenting tips, wellness advice, and more. Go to listentojam.com slash podcast and satisfy your curiosity with short audio. Discover something new every day. So, yeah. 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 Can I just add one more piece? The, there's another piece of what we're talking about is integration, right? So we're talking about mm-hmm. people's right brain. And, <laughs> and I know that there's not a clear distinction, right? They're connected or symbolic here almost, but their right brain emotional experiences, there's a sense, I don't know what's happening. It's global. But then once the left brain meets right. the right, oh, this is what it is. This is in essence what we're calling integration. 
because at that point they they don't understand they can't cognitively get what's happening in their body and their emotions but once they start dancing with each other the nervous system almost says ah oh, i could breathe like it's almost like we're meaning making creatures and if we can make sense of our experience oh this this wow this is healing this makes sense I'm feeling more integrated, more whole. And that that happens, you right. know, um, slowly throughout the, well, the three stages. Again, everything's yeah. a process. So, you know, I think I like if you're like me, because I'm a very, you know, black mm -hmm. and white person, I want the problem, now I want the answer, and then I can move on. <laughs> I don't like all this work in between. <laughs> but I think it's it's very good to know, you know, that there's a process through this mm -hmm. and, and that that we just work at it slowly, step by step. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. So now what was the next, the next step that you were discussing? As in my book, well, okay, I, I sure. tend to shy away from steps, but it's, uh, it's, it's a part, right. a part of the process, uh, not linearly here, uh, sometimes, you know, zigzagging back and forth. Oh, go ahead. And I think that, and I think that's so important. I really like that you just mentioned that rather than focusing on stages, mm -hmm. But that in this pro that this is a process, and that there are steps forward and there are steps backward, and that it's constantly back and forth, and yeah. that it isn't <laughs> it isn't linear. I really like that you just mentioned. Sure, that. yeah. Continue. Oh, it almost might be wise to call them, you know, <laughs> okay. typical ingredients for someone to heal from. Mm -hmm. um, right. I don't know. I'm just uh, like thinking it. through it, but. Um, an another piece that's important for me is just for me in particular, when I do my work is self-compassion and compassion here, we're getting into compassion focused therapy, um, Paul Gilbert's work and also Kristen Neff's work, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of Brene Brown, cause she's done some work in, in that area, you know, on shame and stuff, but that's for me, yeah. it's just, I want to exude compassion by my nonverbals. Another intervention that I mm -hmm. use is my, my tone of my voice. Um, and I have to be culturally sensitive here because sometimes when I get into, like, for example, I was getting into my therapist voice because I know from, you know, neuroscience that prosody matters. And if I could bring my tone down and my voice, you don't realize it, but your nervous system is starting to calm down a little bit. So I might say, Mary, what's that like? What do you feel in your body as you're talking about what happened to you with your youth pastor? Right? That's kind of soothing. Right. It's almost and hypnotic. It makes sense when we think of babies, you know. <laughs> yeah. it's, but it's an it is, it is. Uh, but culturally sensitive because I remember, you know, using that with an, an African American client. And they got pissed. They're like, Mark, <laughs> what? Why the hell are you talking to me like that? Right, right. Like, just just keep it real. I don't want your therapist shit. Um, I was like, whoa. She's like, just talk to me normally, like you would. And I was like, yo, I, I okay. So I want right. to be very sensitive to how they experience this stuff, of course. So, but you know, compassion and being informed by compassion, self-compassion research. And just the things that I say in intermixing with strength-based, I want—I don't want to just talk about their trauma. I want to assess for their strengths, uh, what they do well. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't have nothing. Listen, you got to right. the room. Like something within you yeah. was strong yeah. enough to come here to see me today. Did you notice that? Right. Right. Helping them notice the strengths that they possess 
instead of all kind of <laughs> negative or uh, yeah you know the 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 trauma focused so mixing that in in this yeah. this process is very uh, very important for me um there there's another part that I'm I'm parts focused and so this is going to be coming from internal family systems just knowing that there's parts they have parts and I might right away start using that that um, that language to help them sort of get used to. Oh, we're going to be doing this in the future, especially with phase two work. And so, oh, did you know? Right, one part of you kind of loves your pastor, but another <laughs> part of you hates him and wants to punch him in the face. Right? Did you notice that you have those two parts right now, sort of up front and center? You know, just getting them used to parts work. Um, awesome. And that's going to be another okay. part of that. Well, I think personally, all yeah. this sounds fantastic. <laughs> and I'm glad there's people out there. Yeah, it's, there's people out there that are, that are already focused on this kind of therapy. Safety there are people out there already focused on addressing this issue. Because that, again, that's one of the things we've talked about before is this is, it's relatively new, you know. And, and so there's so many unknowns associated with it that I think people mm -hmm. have a tendency to kind of pull back from what they're experiencing because, well, there's really nobody or nothing to discuss it you know, or with whom to discuss it. So it, it's, it's hard to mm -hmm. approach that on your own, you know? And like I said, because even for me, I felt like I was losing my mind. I, I really mm -hmm. did. I thought I, I've started a midlife crisis and I don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I assumed that's what it was. And so I, I think mm -hmm. that there's also, and this is just my, my, from my experience, but I think that there's a, a period here too, where we allow people to, to grieve um, I know we both, we both talk about grief, um, to grieve and to forgive themselves, you know, for where they feel they've messed up or they've, they've handled it mm -hmm. so inappropriately, because that's a lot of people's experience, especially as you mentioned, you've been kicked out of church. I've been kicked out of church. I had so much anger and, and I would berate myself for that anger because it felt like that wasn't the Christian thing to do. And yet I was experiencing that emotion so deeply that I had to learn to forgive mm -hmm. myself and say, it's okay that I experienced those emotions. And, and to work through them, you know, and mm -hmm. I think that's a really hard thing for people mm -hmm. to do, to forgive themselves. Um, and that may be personality types too. Mm -hmm. I'm really tough on myself, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. That tough on yourself. That's right. And, but that's what so many of us are. I mean, we're, we internalize the, this right. judgmental authoritarian other whether it's because of you know, the God that was presented and portrayed to us, whether it was through the, um, you know, religious fundamentalist-ish <laughs> or straight-up right. fundamentalist uh, parents, you know, we, we internalize their voices within ourselves. And that's why some of us, mm -hmm. the inner critic, mm -hmm. can be so powerful, so demeaning, so vicious, Um but th this is kind of getting for me into sort of phase two work where there it is sort of remembrance and, right. and mourning, working with traumatic memories. Like you said, Michelle, mourning losses and doing that, you know, therapeutically. And this is where gestalt work uh, is important. Uh, this emotion focused work uh, through Les Greenberg's sort of empty chair and two chair work, mm -hmm. right? This is where... For example, let's say there's, you know, gosh, this happens a lot where one person is really struggling with their parent who was, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I have a couple <laughs> like that right now and it's heartbreaking. 
I'm just uh, I'm just feeling that. I'm just remembering very specifically this, let's say this person in their so much grief around their parents could never enter into their experience. It was always like this religious mm -hmm. veil, religious guard. Right. Everything yes. was about demons and casting out demons. And, and this person was never heard, never truly seen and experienced. And her emotions were not valid, were not okay. Um, they had, she had to put, uh, put on the Sunday smile and, you know, think about happy <laughs> Christian positive verses and, right. but just missed her entire life and so much anger, right? And so the mixed feelings of love and anger, and this is a part of the work that's so important to have both at the same time and to work with that in, let's say uh, we could do empty chair work where her father is in the chair in front of us. And through imagination, she imagines her father, what he looks like, what he's wearing, and she begins to tell him, can you, I might say, can you tell him what it felt like to not be seen, heard, accepted, and loved by him growing up? And then she would go on to just share her feelings. And sometimes it takes a little coaching because it's so right. awkward and it feels, well, I don't know if I can mm -hmm. share it. Right. And I remind them, this is in our imagination. This is different, right? This is okay. Does it feel okay with you? No. Okay, let's do a little work to shore the person up. But finally, they're able, they can express themselves. And I just noticed as you were talking to him, your hands started clenching. What do you, what do you want to do right now with your hands? I want to punch him in the face. And this is what's called in intensive short-term dynamic work, maybe portrayal work, where in imagination they mm -hmm. they do that which is sort of visceral and, and it's it is there what they want to do with their experience and just imagining that and imagining the what they would do and then processing the guilt afterwards because typically it goes to rage, guilt, and then love. And what what's it like oh. to see your father on the ground there, all <laughs> bloodied and battered? Oops, I I don't I don't want it. No, I I feel guilty. I'm I'm sad. I love him. Right. But part of that is just getting in touch with the mixed feelings, which then comes into the integration. No, part. it's good. So I know it's complex. I know I'm right. throwing a lot out there. But the point is, that's where empty chair work, imagining the significant other there, sharing your thoughts, sharing your feelings with them, because the brain doesn't care if right. it's real or not. That's the wild thing about the brain. If right. it imagines it, it's like it's really happening in the moment. And there is some right. wonderful processing uh, yeah. and integration and stuff that happens because of that. Um, so that's a part of the, mm -hmm. and then just to mention the uh, two chair work, a little different than empty chair, two chair work is where we might put in the different parts of them where let that angry part really speak. Oh, okay. Well now, you know, sit back and let's move into this other chair. Mm -hmm. Can you speak from that sad part? What would that sad part of you say in this moment? So it's helping, that's where the parts were coming to play. Some people don't need, for example, an internal family systems. They can just sit there. They're like, <laughs> why do they need to go to different chairs? Um, they can close their eyes and just kind of do it in the imagination. Yeah. So I, I do that too. I think that's, I think that's, chairs. I would be one of those people. I'd be like, no, I can sit right here and do it. <laughs> uh, because I'm that very, like, 
well, wait a minute. That I would sit and start analyzing that instead of just doing it. <laughs> but I'm a weird personality, so right. Um, right. But I, one of the things. But but listen, that that's where I would work with the client. Right. And that see, that's just that's a part that comes to the fore. And so, did you notice that intellectual part just keeps popping up here? Let's say hello to <laughs> right. it. Let's see what its what its motivation is. And then we hear the motivation. Oh, well, if I can get heady and intellectual, then that might oh, keep that's a good me from point. getting hurt. Oh, that makes so right. that makes so much sense. What it would be like, just can you ask that part of you, that sort of that intellectual part, what would it be like for it to step to the side for a moment? Oh, it's, it yeah. said it would be okay. <laughs> oh, great. And you think of right. it like a family in the room where we would negotiate and work with each member. We're doing that right. with the internal family yeah. system as yeah, well. Yeah, and that's really helpful. Yeah, because, and I went through some of that too Powerful. when I worked with a, a life coach that we actually went through. You know, Jamal, we, I went through that with Jamal. <laughs> And he and he worked me through some of that stuff. Very cool. Um, I, I have a hard time with that, just me personally, because again, I start intellectualizing sure. it, and I start going, "Well, they're not really here, though." And I like, I get all like crazy with it. But, <laughs> um, but I did find it was helpful when I relaxed yeah, into it. It's not when crazy. I relaxed into it, I, I did no. find it was helpful. But I had a hard time relaxing right. into it. And it's funny because I have a daughter that's exactly like that, and she drives me crazy yeah. with that. <laughs> When I'm trying to explain something to her like that, and she brings that up, I'm like, oh, and that's how I am with people. I get it now. <laughs> so, um, right. but yeah, I think the integration thing right. is is really yeah. very helpful. And I don't know if that's, if you would consider this associated with that. I have actually sat back with people and certainly family members now and said, I need to work through this with you because there was some hurt associated with this. And, and, and I'm at a point now where I feel like I'm in a healthy place where we can discuss this and I can own my responsibility. I can tell you where yeah. I was hurt and maybe we can work through it. And for the most part, that's been a very positive experience as well. I mean, it's not always, but you know, you, you yeah. hope. So. Right. And that's the important piece is. Right. <laughs> it's not always. And I, and sometimes for client, for, I know I use the word clients, but for people that I, I sit with, um, sometimes they have to grieve the parent and the parent right. response that they will right. never get. It's a big part of the journey because for some, their parents can, can't hold that space right. to be empathic, to listen, um, to, to say, I'm sorry. They just don't have the capacity. Sometimes it works and sometimes they do. Um, and sometimes they don't, and, and that's something to process and to work through. Well, one of the things themselves. I did as a parent, of yeah. course, because I felt so much responsibility when I started deconstructing what I believed in, and then being kicked out of the church, I felt the responsibility was mine that my whole family was suffering. And so I actually went back to each of my kids over time and mm. I've sat down with them and said, you know, I'm so sorry mm. because I have felt like this is my responsibility. Can you tell me how you feel so that I can, you know, I can settle this. And, and we've had some really very good talks mm -hmm. about what they were experiencing through all of that. And through that, I got to learn that maybe I wasn't the problem for them. You know, that, that they didn't hold me responsible, mm -hmm. even though I held myself responsible. Mm -hmm. And and so that has been very helpful yeah. um, because it's it's hard to watch from the parent side. It's hard to watch your children go through this you know, and hurt like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. and yeah. in addition to your yeah. own pain and discomfort, mm -hmm. you know, knowing that maybe you've caused somebody else's is, is very difficult. And that's one of the things that we've had a, a couple conversations with people that have been in the pastoral role. 
which is a very different perspective because we forget that those people are suffering some pain and disillusionment as well. And we tend to hold them responsible for a lot of hurt and harm. And maybe they're struggling through some of the same, you know, and, and getting to a point where you're able to see <laughs> that is kind of healing in itself. Yeah. It's healing and it's, it's, I think it's important. I think it's necessary for, you know, integration. It deals with the mixed feelings and thoughts. It's common to engage in what we know as a defense of splitting and splitting is a process where it's hard to deal with both. Well, my pastor could have been suffering himself. It could have been passed down to him. Uh, could Maybe right. he didn't know any better. Maybe he was doing the best he could with the tools that he had at the time. Uh, versus, nope, he's a narcissistic <laughs> psychopath. He was gaslighting me, that <laughs> son of a bitch. There's nothing good within him. The whole church should burn. Um, so, yeah, I mean, valid. I get it. Uh, wow, you're right. really angry. Right. Of course you would be. So, once again, just validating the yeah. hell out of the <laughs> anger. Mm-hmm. But, but also potentially getting mm-hmm. to the point where we could see the kaleidoscopic uh, experience of reality where things are mixed. Right. And not only this, something that's not very talked about is it's so easy to split and project all uh, projections, another defense where the church is the sole right. cause of all my problems. And so there's the defense of displacement and invariably not all the time there's, you know, the, we sometimes we can get angry that the church wasn't the right. parents that we wish we had. Right. So part of our anger at the church is also angry that we didn't have the parents that raised us up with love and acceptance and warmth. And so it's interesting to tease that out. It, sometimes it's not all the church, but, and, and additionally, it could be life. It, what about the reality that we uh, were seeking omnipotent type of figures to bring us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, that's hard to talk about. Do, did we have any choice to go there every Sunday? What were we looking for existentially that we were kind of grasping for and wishing and, oh, this person's going to save us unconsciously, probably. That's hard right. stuff, too. Um, not always talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much associated with all of this, you know, and that's what, that's the point we've made a couple of times now that this is so personal, you know, that we're all going to experience it in different ways. And there Mm -hmm. may be those signposts along the way that, you know, identify us as all on the kind of the same journey, but we all experience it so differently. And, and Seth and I have talked about that before too, like mental health in in its entirety is that way, (laughs) you know, there may be these signposts, but everybody's experiencing it so, so differently. Um, So I was just curious if you thought that a lot of people, like generally the people that are, that would identify here, do you think they should be in a therapeutic situation or do you think that the majority of them are probably okay just trying to work through it on their own? And I know that's kind of a loaded question, so. Yeah, you know, I I would never put a one size fits all, you know, everyone needs this, but you need an unholy huddle. You, you need someone to, you know, these people who are able to sit with that, which you might consider unholy within yourself, the, the huddle, the people who are, you know, listening and, and helping you work through this conundrum and, 
you know, being those witnesses and witnesses, those people who are able to be with you in this compassionate, caring, non-judgmental others. So whether it's a therapist, um, I know people who don't work with therapists and they just work with spiritual directors. Um, I don't care if it's a life coach. I don't care if it's three people that you know that are able to hold that space for you. The point is not doing it alone. Um, now, I, maybe I mm -hmm. would say therapists, you know, maybe we have some specializations and that, that could really help and, you know, who, yeah, I mean, who would not benefit from a good right. therapist, but, but, you know, I, I acknowledge that, you know, I don't care who it is, just find somebody uh, that right. you can work this stuff out, even a Facebook group or some people you meet on, you know. Uh, your, your podcast. I was going to say, or a mental know, podcast. Just connecting with Seth. Seth, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> but I want to really quickly um, go over the phases that you were mentioning because I, I got phase one, which was safety and stability. Mm -hmm. And then we got to phase two. Yeah, phase two, we were talking about it sort of remembrance and mourning. yeah and then phase uh, there, one piece mm -hmm. i'd like to mention before we get to phase stage three in in stage mm -hmm. two at least from my work this is where self-compassion work becomes more central so whereas stage one i'm sort of what we call seeding uh, where i am uh, planting the seeds for a compassionate self stage two is where i uh, work with them to do uh, more intensive self-compassionate practices. And that could be anything mm -hmm. from self-compassionate med meditation, sort of uh, my go-to maybe initial is there's a exercise called uh, how to treat a friend, which is a self-compassionate practice, imagining how you would treat your friend if they were suffering, what would be your tone of voice? What are the things that you would say? And how can you have that same tone and that same warmth towards yourself in the midst of this? So how can we practice that self-compassion with principles and practices and doing some imaginal work and, you know, you know exploring the self-critic and working with the self-critic a little bit more. So just to throw that in, that self-compassion work for me is, is very important. And that takes us, I don't yeah. know if you want to go yeah. to three, that's more of reconnection mm -hmm. with self and integration you know, kind of consolidating everything we learned, really kind of solidifying your identity. And this is for me where um, maybe um, narrative therapy and storying and restoring and being able to share your story in a way that feels congruent with you, that is not only your traumatized self, but also the self that now is strong that has now gained a sense of identity for who you are and just like feels embodied, truly owning their body and their experience. And then this is where also values, values work comes into play. Um, now that you're no longer connected to the matrix and those tubes are connected to the pastor and the, the interpretations of the Bible and you cut mm -hmm. them, you know, the work of who the hell am I what do I love? What do I want to do? Um, this is all hugely important for those who are reconstructing and healing. It takes enormous amount of time, but simple as simple as helping them find their values, right? Goals are something that we can achieve. Values is sort of that compass that's always pointing us to the direction of the life that we want to live. 
And something as simple as helping them like know what your values are, what your top five are, what your top two are, whether it's, oh, wow, authenticity is really big for me or justice or curiosity uh, or integrity or persistence or acceptance, uh, you know, health and fitness, whatever it is, this is your life. And what I love about this is some people get stuck on the, the healing journey thinking they need to figure it all out. For me, that's the hamster wheel. That's, that's a lie. We, we have these puny brains trying to understand the universe and monkeys trying to understand this internet, aka God thing. I mean, we're never going to do it. Right. So if, you, if mm-hmm. you're going to make a choice that I can only live life until I figure out, well, what do I think about theodicy? Is God real? Is God not? What about the Trinity? What about prayer? Like, can you live with the questions? Can you live with some anxiety? And this is where acceptance and commitment therapy comes into play. You know, the notion that we have to have it all together to truly live according to our values, uh, it's a lie. We can live according to our values despite our messy selves. And that could be very freeing for folks to kind of explore that, that part. Yeah. I just keep sitting here cycling through all the stuff that I'm thinking and feeling <laughs> in association with the discussion, <laughs> which, you know, very narcissistic of me, but <laughs> it's all right there. Like, oh, there's me, there's me, there's me. But, but it is one of the, it is one of the yeah. things of, of working mm-hmm. through this while being interested in talking about the subject matter, living the subject matter as well. Um, and it becomes, mm-hmm. yeah. Living your individual subject right. matter that you're creating, you have the pen. Right you're writing it like i mean yeah. it's daunting for but some it people, is uh, your you statement know? just a minute ago is very validating oh. to me personally that it's okay to to live with these questions it's okay to live by your morals without having it all together you know because i i think about that often i just had a discussion yeah. with somebody yesterday in the gym over that you know it's as they're working through this and and talking about like well okay but we still have to live authentically you know, even if we're not sure where that leads us or what we're doing yet. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy for me to tell somebody else that, but it's so very difficult for me to apply it to myself, you know? Um, and I think that's common for people, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a fascinating, again, this is such a fascinating subject matter. And it, it, again, for me, it is anyway. And and I know for a lot of people because they're experiencing it. Well, this has been a very beneficial interview. Of, um, I really like how, how Mark, you you described these different phases that one goes through in this process of recovering from religious trauma. Um, how long have you been doing individual therapy around this topic? Um, I'd probably say more intensively the last two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is it that launched you into this? I'm just curious. Well, I, I have, I, I probably would say I have two niches. One is I specialize in couples therapy. I mean, I do individual and family, but sp- really specializing mm-hmm. and have a heart passion for couples therapy and uh, religious trauma work. And so why I think makes a lot of sense because I've experienced religious trauma myself. Um, I still feel experience a little bit of the residue of that religious trauma. Um, So I know experientially what it takes to work through um, as a therapist, just feeling such a tremendous call. Um, And this where I think where my Mm -hmm. spirituality comes into play, 
it just it's it lights my world up it, to see people become free from toxic religion and to know it's possible and to know I've done it. I've helped people who come out like hating themselves, disoriented, just trauma, panic attacks, you name it to I'm alive in the world. I, I feel a sense of self. I'm embodied. I feel self-compassion. Like I could do it well. I'm just, I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. Still with, you know, anxiety, have a down day here and there. But my goodness, this is worlds apart from when I first came in. I'm like, God, that feels good. And to be a right. catalyst uh, for that change to occur. I mean, it gives me a sense of purpose too. I mean, I, I definitely, it's not, I'm not an altruistic, oh, it's all for people. I feel tremendous joy on myself to, to work with folks through that. So yeah, it's very important for me. As you should. Well, if people... If people were in a similar state as you or wanted to read some of your books, where can they go to find out more about you? I would say just go to markgregorycarris.com and, you know, just type in Amazon, Mark Harris, there you'll find my books. And really Facebook is probably what she, <laughs> I feel like an old dinosaur. I'm not on <laughs> everything else, but that's probably the only place people are going to find me. And I'm not as active as I like to be, but yeah. when you're in dealing with trauma all day, going on Facebook is like re-traumatizing mm -hmm. myself. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah. That's why we had, that's why you have a website, <laughs> right. right? That's how, that's what it's all about yeah. right there. Well, we want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing yeah. so much mm -hmm. with our audience. I, I really think that, um, of the episodes we put out on this topic, yeah. I think this is probably going to be the most beneficial for people to really start looking at what are those next steps. Yeah. And so um, I want to thank you so much for coming uh, thank on. Thank you. And I, I also have a gift for your readers, uh, listeners, actually. Oh. Um, you know, if they contact mm -hmm. me anyway and they say, Mark, I'd like to get your book, nice. I'll just send you the PDF. Very generous. <laughs> Um, I, I just That's like to help say. people, man. I, hey. I ain't for anything, anything else. I don't know how. We're, we're <laughs> just don't answer his call. <laughs> but, but hey, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. So if anyone gets to this, the ending, which you know, then they get mm -hmm. to have a gift. So. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Well, thank yeah. you so much. And uh, <laughs> I'm actually going to buy I it though, because so. I want it. I want. I want. The, I want to smell it. Oh. I'm weird. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, you so much. Good chatting. And Michelle. Are you yeah. going to give me the last word? Don't do that. My I'm internet give you just the cut last now. Word. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Well, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us again on another episode of Mental. Uh, if you have any suggestions for us on topics, uh, you can certainly reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook group there that you can come and ask questions, uh, lend a helping hand to those that are struggling. Um, offer your suggestions. We also, I know we had a Marco Polo. Seth, are we still having a Marco Polo or no? <laughs> yes, we are. In fact, I left a polo on there this morning. The only people on that Marco oh, Polo okay. thread well, are pretty it's much available. friends, though. So um, I was just on there venting. It is available. We do have a Marco Polo. So if you are interested in that and you communicate via Marco Polo, please feel yep. free to hit me up. Um, I do want to keep that active. 
Um, in addition to that, Michelle may have already mentioned this, but we have a Facebook group as well as a Facebook page and an Instagram page. And for all things mental, please feel free to check out our website. It is mental-podcast.com. We'll talk to you all next week. Get more for your money this Thanksgiving at Meyer. Set the table with Meyer Grade A frozen turkey for 55 cents per pound, limit two. Then save with everyday low prices on sides like Meyer frozen steamable sweet corn and Meyer cream of mushroom soup, a five pound bag of russet potatoes for 99 cents, and Pillsbury crescents and pie crust. Buy three, get two free. Plus, get the same low Meyer prices no matter how you shop, in store or online. Exclusions apply. See all the deals in the Meyer app. Did you know 77% of women who wear bladder weakness products experience intimate skin irritation? As if having incontinence wasn't stressful enough. But Tenna Intimate Pads have been gynecologist tested and do not cause skin irritation. Gentle on my intimate skin. I need to try Tenna Intimate Pads. Visit TennaSample.com for your free sample. Kind to skin protects like Tenna.